Unlike the McDonald's Quarter Pounders you'll find in Paris, this podcast has the same name on either side of the Atlantic Ocean. And what is the name of that podcast I hear you ask? Well of course it's that song from that movie, with cheese. Oh me. Oh my. Yeah, yeah, well done. Thank you for joining that song from that movie, The Journey for the Very Best and Worst of Movie Songs. I am your, this is your explicit warning for this episode. Uh, seriously, this is your explicit warning, host Dietrich. And if any of you fucking pricks move, he'll execute every motherfucking last one of you. Alex. <laughs> yeah, descended very rapidly there into the swears. Yeah, yeah. Not so hundred. The, uh, the hard language. <laughs> But it's it's it is factual though. I can sense when you you're not really paying attention to our voices, and I will uh, <laughs> react accordingly. And equally, we're also joined by a soft, moist, shapeless mass of matter. Ben, <gasps> Mum, sorry, that's what she usually calls me. This is normally the segment. It's called "What have we been watching this week?" However, I've been to the cinema. Alex has probably watched an episode of Succession. But what we really want to know, Ben, what do you think of the Lightyear trailer? Is that is that is that Ben just like turning off his laptop and leaving? Ben, do you want to tell the good folks at home what you think about Lightyear? <laughs> I can't tell if this is him just being quiet. No, I can't either. Um, I I actually quite like the trailer, but mm. I will make sure I don't like the film. You'll make sure you don't like it. I don't. It's not really classed in the same. It's not like a. It's not like Toy Story 5, is it? Like they're starting again. So if they do three Buzz Lightyear films, I might enjoy them all. Is this uh, one of these things where you're fine with it, but Alex is going to get really annoyed with it because it retcons Buzz Lightyear of Star Command? It's <laughs> <laughs> just funny, though, because when, when, I, when I watched the trailer, I was like reading loads of articles about how it fits into the, uh, the Toy Story uh, universe, I guess it would be. And they were talking a lot about Toy Story Star Command. <laughs> uh, Buzz Lightyear Star Command, sorry. So yeah, so I mean, yeah, I'm also going to be furious about that. But I am also a bit annoyed that you didn't ask me what I saw this week, because I did go to the cinema this week for the first time in two years. Oh, really? What did you go see? <laughs> I went to see Dune. Oh, yeah, what do you think? Um, I thought it was really good. Have you, re- have you read the books? Yes, well, I've read the first one. Uh, okay. I read the first one, like, about six or seven years ago. But I didn't um, realise, because I hadn't been keeping up with the news, that it was only going to be the first half of the first book. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that until I feel like I had kept up with the news. And as soon as it starts, it says part one. Yeah. So I mean, I don't want to ruin any of the actual plot if no one, if people haven't seen it. But I, it felt very much like the ending was the middle. <laughs> it didn't feel like a natural ending because it isn't. <laughs> it is the middle of the first book, and a lot of good stuff happens in the second half. Like a lot of the best stuff happens in the second half. So it was a bit. I really enjoyed it, and it was very true to kind of how it, the book is, which was great, unlike the David Lynch one, which is just mad. But <laughs> I think, I felt like I was watching it, enjoying it, but feeling like a lot of people in the room were confused that's as to exactly what they were I watching. <laughs> like, I could, uh, But I think, that's, I think that's just the problem of Dune. Yeah, I think a lot of people went in thinking, oh, Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, and then were like, uh, what's going on? <laughs> Why are there giant worms? <laughs> But really good, though. I mean, I really liked it. I think the atmosphere of it is is amazing, and it it's loud. It is loud. loud. <laughs> it's loud. 
It is quite slow paced, though, isn't it? As well. So, like for a sci-fi, just I just yeah. can't imagine a lot of people who went in there thinking, "Oh, this is going to be like the next Star Wars." Were that um, impressed? But maybe yeah. I'm wrong. I don't know. <laughs> it's done. It's done very well on the HBO instant streaming service in America, which is it's already been commissioned for its for a sequel because it it hadn't been confirmed, which would have been weird uh, to just end it there. But it will come out eventually. Right. They haven't. They didn't film them at the same time. They didn't film the second half at the same time. No, I don't. I'm pretty sure. They no, haven't. they haven't. Cause... Right. Well, that's mad, really. Because, like, they actually just were like, you know what? We're still going to commit <laughs> yeah, yeah. to doing because the it, first it, half. There's no yeah. ending. There's literally yeah, no there ending. Is, there is no, no ending to it. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's weird. It just you sort of like, oh, I've been here for two and a half hours. I guess it's finishing now. You sort of sat there thinking, this feels like they're making an ending. <laughs> yeah. More than it actually feeling like one. Yeah, it's odd. I also saw Dune. I haven't seen Dune. I've been to see its Marvel equivalent, Eternals. Its Marvel equivalent. Is it, was it as crap as they say? Um, it's as sandy and bland as June. Do you know, I, I, read, okay. I read an interesting article, though, about it, because the se- it said that it was the first Marvel film to feature a sex scene. Yeah, it's, it, that is weird. I went yesterday, so it was like Saturday afternoon, and the cinema was full of children. And it's this random scene where Richard Madden and Gemma Chan are completely naked, and it's like, well, one, I want to see more, but... Uh, <laughs> Two. I don't think the kids in the cinema should be seeing this. This is the kind of film I pay for. It's all right. Yeah, it's not great. Right, cool. I was going to go to the cinema this afternoon, so I won't see that now. Thanks, Dee. Well, I, w- I went to see the My Hero Academia movie as well yesterday. <laughs> really? Did you? Yeah. It just there was just me, my wife, and two other people who kept reacting to everything like, "Whoa, man! Whoa!" Uh, <laughs> I can't believe- oh my god! It was me. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, and that was just your wife. <laughs> Whoa. So this week we're going back to Quentin Tarantino and this time for his classic Pulp Fiction, uh, along with all of its songs. That's the topic of today's episode and next week's episode as well. Oh, there's a lot of songs. So to find out what was happening in the world when the movie came out. Time for some history. It is time for some history and we be vibing. So yes, we're going to October 1994, which was when Pulp Fiction was released in the United Kingdom. The Nobel Prize in Economics goes to John Hassania, John Nash, and Reinhard Selton. People know who John Nash is? Movie aficionados? No. No, did he create Bagel Nash? Someone won an Oscar for portraying him. John Nash. Does not sound like that. (laughs) Uh, It was Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind. Oh, yes, yes. yes. Ah, He's the man who was in the the game theory, yes. (laughs) While also suffering with schizophrenia. Yes. Um, Spoiler. And seeing Paul Paul Benn is everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What a horror. (laughs) In other news, Venus Williams makes her professional debut at 14, winning her first match before a very illustrious career. Uh, and Alex, I've got two words for you. Is it Will Smith? It's Daewoo. Daewoo. The Korean car company <laughs> announces it will start selling cars in the UK. And you cannot walk down a street nowadays without seeing a handful of Daewoos. Was that a Mike Bassett reference, Ben? <laughs> it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, for those unaware, Daewoo is one word. <laughs> I can't remember the last time I saw a Daewoo. No. Do they even exist anymore? Probably not. I don't think so. Which is a shame, because I need a new car. (laughs) I'll let you know next week. But yes, in more related news, Pulp Fiction was released. It was the second film by Quentin Tarantino with a very star-studded cast, including John Travolta, 
Uma Thurman, Samuel L. Jackson, and Bruce Willis, among many others, chronicling the experiences of several lives intertwined within the criminal world of Los Angeles. Before we go into some details about the film, straight up, what are your guys' thoughts? We've already covered Reservoir Dogs, so where does this stand compared to that? Yeah, so I think we did speak about it on the Reservoir Dogs episode and sort of like Reservoir Dogs versus Pulp Fiction debate. I rewatched Pulp Fiction this week and I think it, this has solidified my view of it. So while, this, while there are things I like about this movie, it's so bogged down by the middle, by the backstory of Bruce Willis's character. <laughs> I just can't uh, say it's a, like a completely great film. It's definitely not as good as Reservoir Dogs. It just tilts me back to Reservoir Dogs as the tighter, better experience whilst you're watching it. I love everything involving Samuel Jackson when he's on screen. Travolta and Uma Thurman are brilliant, but I just can't get past the fact that Bruce Willis's character and backstory is boring as shit. Uh, you could realistically cut out the middle 50 minutes of this movie and you wouldn't lose anything. Okay. Okay. Alex? Uh, I disagree, but I also understand what you're saying about that backstory section. But there is, like, if we directly compare it to Reservoir Dogs, we spoke about in that episode, there's that weird part in the middle where it shows the backstory of um, Mr. Blonde and how they, they got into the whole situation in the first place and stuff, and I think that that's weird. But I do agree that Reservoir Dogs is a tighter film, but it's a much simpler story. I, I think I said in that episode that I preferred this one, and I do still stick by that. I think like when I first saw it, which was when I was probably way too young, below the, 18, the year of, <laughs> age of 18, I was like, oh, it's all cut up and it makes no sense. And that's why it's good. You know, like that's how you feel as a child. <laughs> I like don't get it. That must make it good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think like the more I've watched it, I think the more I've actually come to appreciate it. And I've listened to quite a lot of people talking about this film and like I've seen videos of people like trying to dissect it and stuff. Which, I suppose, for some people could make it less enjoyable, but I, I kind of like think it has helped to understand what it's actually doing a bit more. And it's like it's packed full of these really sort of fun. You have to kind of see it to believe it sort of moments, like the where they is it is it I was gonna say it's Vincent. It's Vincent, isn't it? John Travolta shoots that guy back yeah. in the car, and then there's a little dancing scene. There's a little dancing scene with uh, Uma Thurman, and then there's the the adrenaline shot, and there's like there's a, and obviously the moment the the final scene, and like. I heard it described once as like being a bit like a shared wild memory with your friends. Like from the outside, it makes no sense, but you have to kind of be there to understand it. And I think that that kind of, to me, sums up what the film is about. Like Tarantino sort of pieces together these sort of like seemingly like random fragments to tell stories sort of about friendship and connection, about creating like sort of moments of surreal togetherness that form like lasting bonds. And I feel like as an audience, that's kind of how I've feel about it that like i have like a lasting bond with this film because like i just i feel connected to those really strange moments that are sort of pieced together as a whole um, and okay i see people talk about it as like it's like a homage to collage which i think is a, a great sentence yes, yeah. <laughs> homage to collage. and um sort of you see that the way the film like sort of splices like old pulp stories with this non-linear narrative and like the pop culture references but also, as we'll go into with the music, is really anachronistically placed in a lot of scenes. And it's kind of just finding new ways of telling, of combining things that don't seem to make sense together to create a new story. And I, and that's kind of how, like, friendships are. Like, I do think the film is about, like, friendships. It's about people coming together who don't feel right or have their own weird quirks. And yet it creates these sort of strange, interesting moments. And like it's it's I think that's what makes the film stand out so much because it is just more about like shooting these crazy moments 
and piecing yeah, them together yeah. to create a, a random whole that sort of makes sense together, but doesn't make sense on its own. Like the bits on their own don't make sense at all. <laughs> if, if, if anyone ever tried to do something similar again, it probably wouldn't work, but it just works so perfectly in this case because everything is tailored around it working, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like even from the dialogue like the beginning scene for instance where you introduced tim roth's character and and the uh, honey bunny and uh sweetie pie or whatever yeah. they're called and um what they're talking about makes literally no sense at all but then by the end of the film it kind of everything comes together again and um yeah i just I, I know i've rambled on a bit but i think it just no 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 i, I can it all makes sense yeah i just i just i do like it but i feel like it's almost a one-off like i feel like it wouldn't work again. It would, anything else that would be similar would just feel like it was copying it. And I think a lot of people have probably tried to do yeah, that. Which, which is interesting because it is, in a way, it's a, as you said, a homage to collage. It is basically a copycat of a lot of other things before. Yeah. But doing it in a slightly different way, like combining yes, things together. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, I guess you could say that is what all films are in a lot of ways, but this one is so openly and obviously a homage to every other film that's come before in a lot of ways. Yeah. I guess it's the, it's the left field films his knowledge of film he took bits from those that you've not seen your know, spaghetti westerns for people unaware pulp fiction refers to pulp magazines which were filled with crime stories incredibly punchy dialogue heavy violence of which pulp fiction emulates all of that these aren't like sort of center stage in the zeitgeist or in mainstream culture he just picks them apart and kind of finds a way to make them relevant or is sometimes in the case of pulp fiction quite ahead of the curve and I think recycles this. It's like a watershed moment, similar to what happened in the '60s with films like uh, Bonnie and Clyde, um, Straw Dogs, Clockwork Orange, like the 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 violence making violence mainstream again, and quite quite sexy, quite exciting in some ways, quite funny in a very black humor sense. I find it very difficult to label Pulp Fiction. Websites like Wikipedia refer to it as a black comedy. I think that's too reductionist because I think it is almost everything. <laughs> uh, you could you could describe it as a crime drama. I think you could describe it as a black comedy because I think it definitely does have elements of that. You, you could describe it as a sort of a oh, it's almost got like buddy cop elements. You know, mm. it has some weird like um, very very weird romance elements. It's got like the boxing fights. You know, there's a lot going on, um, and yeah, it's very hard to pin down. It was interesting we're saying that, though, about it being a worship moment, because there's a, a very interesting bit I found. So, famous British critic John Ronson, in the mid-90s, I think it's mid to late-90s, he was attending the National Film School's end-of-semester screenings. So this is, you know, young up-and-coming directors. And he was assessing in his book the impact of Pulp Fiction, and he said, Out of the five student movies he watched, four incorporated violent shootouts over a soundtrack of iconoclastic 70s pop hits, <laughs> two climaxed with the all main characters shooting each other at once, and one had two hitmen discussing the idiosyncrasies of the Brady Bunch before offing their victim. Not since Citizen Kane has one man, referring to Tarantino, appeared from relative obscurity to redefine the art of movie making, which I think is very uh, a very punchy way of describing it, that he basically, every sort of late teen, young adult, wanted their movies to be like this to be so sort of you know shooting from the hip really in your face thoughts <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just really interesting I, I love that that way he described it and i think that's kind of what i was saying like i don't think it would work that well if anyone else 
would try it now, but I think that that's because so many people did try. It feels like people did try to emulate it, or and it, and it did seem to just like instantly be this kind of film that everyone just loved. And similarly with Reservoir Dogs, wasn't it? It was just like we were, we oh, were yes, talking about. Yes. It's just like just so immediately just created like this cultural shift and and it still has that relevance today it's funny like i've had a few conversations recently about the film avatar and the fact that it hasn't really left much of a cultural footprint even though it was like yeah. the set is the second biggest box office film of all time of, of, well, back, of, back of to the most. biggest yeah back to the biggest and it's like but other than maybe like people dressing up at the time as like blue aliens <laughs> for halloween it's had really <laughs> no cultural footprint whereas yeah. like the yeah. both this film and and Reservoir Dogs still continue to have it to this day, and it was like an independent yeah, yeah. film. It's 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 interesting, isn't it? Both this film and Reservoir Dogs are almost like milestones in cinema. Oh yeah, definitely. Like if you were going to go back through time and say you need to watch this to get this to get yes. this, yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of you have to go through these two films. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Where we're using Avatar, like you could probably just skip straight over. Exactly. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. Because I, I guess it's it, that this is Tarantino style, and I put there probably isn't a director that had this his first two films. He reinvented the industry. Yeah. He made Miramax like the the behemoth that it was for independent cinema. I don't know if that was a good thing or not. <laughs> Considering what happened with Weinstein. It's probably not a good thing because if you're unaware if you're unaware, Miramax was uh, led by Harvey Weinstein, which led to him becoming the powerhouse that he was. Uh, mainly because he loved violence. I wonder why. Yeah. Um and a lot of other production companies rejected Pulp Fiction at the time. And I think like again, going back to his- going back for history things like Clockwork Orange, it works well in a film's favour if there's a shunning of it from other parts of the industry or public you know it's it's like the exorcist you know you, you need that hysteria that sort of like how dare they make this film that's going to make people see it more i don't think we will ever have a watershed moment like that again in film i think the internet has just made us so desensitized and with how media uh the news is nowadays i just can't ever see another huge change in one film that affects everything but you know prove me wrong directors so the film had critical and commercial success at the time. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, which is the most prestigious prize. Uh, it was nominated for Best Picture, losing out to Forrest Gump. I mean, I can kind of see that with how the <laughs> it was very much more Oscar film. <laughs> yeah, you can really get more contrasting tattoo films. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't, can you? Uh, it did win Best Original Screenplay, which Tarantino has famously said that's the one he cares about. And he wants eventually to hold the record for most screenplay Oscars. Do we know who has the most? Oh, that's a good question. Um, is it someone? Is it someone like from a, a long time ago? Uh, yeah, I, I suppose still famous, probably for sometimes not the right reasons. Uh, I was going to say Roman Polanski. <laughs> no, no, it's a good guess. It was Woody Allen. Oh, Woody Allen. Right. So I think he has three, and Tarantino has two. Uh, I think he's one behind. Uh, but Woody Allen also has sixteen nominations because the guy made a lot of films. Moving slightly on to what we want to talk about, as we've discussed previously with Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino is meticulous with his music choices, being the mediophile he is, the all-consumer of uh, music and film. There was no original score for Pulp Fiction, as with Reservoir Dogs, and if you read the screenplay for Pulp Fiction, you will see that Tarantino writes the name of the songs into the scenes. He knows what piece of music he wants when he writes it. He already has it in his mind. He's not doing it in editing. He's not thinking about it. It's so core to what he wants 
to be going on. Even if the song is background, it has a place in the film. It's often sometimes being played on radio or in the case, in some case in this film, in the diner. Um, it's very much, I won't say center stage, but it's part of the storytelling. I'm assuming you guys agree. Of course you do. Yes. Yeah, of course. But there was a soundtrack release for the film. It reached 21 in the Billboard Top 200, mm-hmm. again with the popularity of the film. And it contains 13 songs from the movie, uh, along with several others that were left out and dialogue snippets interspersed between the songs. And for the purpose of this pod, we will look at those 13 songs. Gulp. Uh, <laughs> some in more detail, with others as we work through the film in order. I'm worried because I've only got a list of nine on my <laughs> notes. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I've got nine. There's there's some <laughs> non-lyrical ones right. that I've just included for the purpose of a certain discussion. So we'll try and make it fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's the aim. I wipe the sweat from my brow. I've made sure to write in my notes. Should have made another cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put a kettle on, boys. The first song in Pulp Fiction, and it kicks off with a banger, is Mizaloo by Dick Dale and his Deltones. What a name for a band. And this song plays out just as the credits begin, as we see the title cards roll in and the star-studded cast begin to appear over those words, Pulp Fiction. Uh, what do we think of this song? It does kick off with a oomph. I'll let you go first, D, given that it's a credits scene. I feel like you'll have things to say. Well, I mean, it's already had a scene before, so it's not quite... Oh, I see, yeah. Opening credits, but um, I, I'm not sure how you can't like this song. It's got such a, like a, like a bounce and a high tempo to it, and when you juxtapose that with the yellow text on the black screen for a few minutes, then it, it's just a thumbs up from me. Although, oh. did you guys find it hard not to sing Black Eyed Peas over yes. the top of this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now again, pump it louder. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, I did have that same reaction. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> I was just singing it as you were talking in my mind. <laughs> Damn you, Will I Am. Yeah, as we have said many times. <laughs> Alex? Yeah, I mean, I think this, this is, well, I was going to say it's the iconic song for Pulp Fiction, but maybe there are a couple that come later on. But I think this is the one that initially comes to mind, just because of that. It's sort of like, it's almost like an explosion into the film, isn't it? Like, it just comes on so loudly all of a sudden. Yeah. Boom, 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 and it's like, Ooh. And like, because you've had that really, I was going to say a meaty scene. It's not a particularly long scene, but there's there's a lot of back and forth dialogue going on and you're kind of like trying to adjust to what what they're actually talking about and understand it then all of a sudden there's guns and then all of a sudden the credits are starting and you're like what's going on <laughs> what's happening oh yeah happening? it's 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 packing a punch isn't it like there's it i think it ends on like the freeze frame of like um is it eli roth tim roth tim roth that's it yeah sorry catching a point in the gun and it just kind of like snips and then it gets into that sort of just that repeated one guitar string just strumming yeah. away but also brave as well to have like and uh, like you said it wasn't didn't come right at the beginning, but just like immediately after about f- four minutes or something, just to cut straight to a credit sequence that lasts for quite a long time yep, at the beginning yep. of the film, like you're in and then you're out and then you're back in again in a completely different place with different characters. It's it's it takes some time getting used to, I suppose, but it, it does certainly get you attention. I think. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think this is it's an absolute killer track. Um, probably saying it already the. Probably is the best song, personally. Potentially. But stick around for next week when we do uh, best song. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. As, I, as I've often gone through talking to them, I realise, oh, actually, there's quite a few. But I just think it, yeah, it kicks off with such a flurry. I mean, Dick Dale and his Deltones, they're quite iconic in the surf rock weird little genre that kind of came out in the early 60s, was gone by the mid-60s, which a lot of the songs in this film, not all of them, but a lot of them, 
have references to that style of music. And I think Tarantino's trying to set that scene, even though I don't think the film is set. I don't know if the film is set in the 60s. It doesn't really feel like it at all times. It's hard to grasp. But that's definitely what he's going for, set in LA. It's that cool sort of feeling. It gives kind of a... I don't know. It's the it's the Hawaiian shirt, you know, the feeling <laughs> like, yeah, I'm chill, I'm relaxed, I'm ready for something. But yeah, the melody of the song is very weird. It's based on an Eastern European folk song. Never was aware of it. It was fairly famous in the 60s. Came back with a bang because of Pulp Fiction. And yeah, it's only played on one guitar string. Don't know how obvious that is to someone with an untrained <laughs> ear. Alex? Um, I can see. I can. Is it very obvious? Well, I don't know if it's very obvious, but I think certainly you can see how it could be done. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, a young fan <laughs> dared Dick Dale to make a song with just one string. There you go. Did it. <laughs> Next, Tarantino famously said, uh, "Having Mizaloo as your opening credit, it's just so intense. It just says you're watching an epic. You're watching a big old movie." And he just throws down the gauntlet that the movie now has to live up to. I think that's kind of fair. Yeah, I think as well. Like to go, you you mentioned like about the spaghetti western references. It does have that kind of western sound to it, almost weirdly, yeah, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's the. Is it like a? It's not. It's not a bugle. It's like a. Is it like a? What? What is the instrument? It kicks in the the horn. Yeah, that's the yeah, yeah, it's that element. <laughs> it was me. It, it was me doing it. The whole it, was time. <laughs> it was me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. That that element definitely feels like uh, a spaghetti western. Q magazine rated it eighty nine out of a hundred greatest guitar guitar tracks. <laughs> guitar tracks. <laughs> One of those guitars. <laughs> <laughs> guitar track. And apparently it was covered by the Beach Boys. Not heard that version, but yes, it's definitely a kick ass tune. We're not even through the credits before Tarantino turns the radio station over, title card still on the screen, and we realise we are just listening to a radio station. And we are introduced to Jungle Boogie by Cool and the Gang, halfway through the song, to the best part of the song, definitely. It helps me escape the DFS thoughts that I have when I listen to this. <laughs> get down, get down. Da, da, da. Yeah, which is definitely, and then it says, get down to DFS for this weekend's <laughs> big sale. And a sale for about 10 years. Still going now. Um, I think it's clever, isn't it? It, it, it kind of immediately shows you, like all we discussed at the beginning about the film, about how things are going to be smashing into each other seemingly at random and yet you feel like there's a really specific hand that's chosen them to do mm. so it's it's weird and then it obviously leads perfectly into the the next scene which is in the car and i just think it's clever and i think it yeah it immediately sort of gets you prepared for the fact that you're going to be seeing things from different eras potentially different tones different themes mm-hmm. just like meshed together at will yeah. and you're just going to have to accept it you're not going to yeah. be ready for it, and you just have to accept it. <laughs> I sort of get that it helps Miss Alou become like a diegetic song in the scene, but the song's just not as good, so I just don't believe <laughs> that Samuel Jackson and John Travolta would turn over the radio station for this <laughs> without just turning it straight back. It's just, it feels like it's one of those, like, you turn on the radio on any sort of, like, 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s radio station, it's going to be this song. It's one of those where it's just like, yeah, of course, it's on the radio. The, the middle part of this song where it's kind of like the almost like the scales going up and down I just think it's so cool though oh, like the oh. actually singing the get down get down you know the da, 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 and it kind of goes through the scales that's very cool and that's the part it starts in at but even like you were saying Alex about the credits playing over he doesn't let it drag on too much like he keeps the title cards on but switches the song it's it's bas- it's keeping your attention uh, yeah and it's sticking to it and this is a, a heavily sampled song 
In total, apparently, it has been sampled 157 times in other songs over the years. Can you think of any off the top of your head? Um, I actually can't. I actually can't think of any. Madonna's coming to mind. Is there a Madonna song? It is Madonna. Yeah, well done. <laughs> I can't believe you got that. I don't know which song, though. I just feel Erotica like... by Madonna. There you go. For classics. <laughs> One of your favourites. <laughs> just feels like something Madonna would have sampled. Yeah. Apparently Tarantino said he went with the track because it had a strong 70s vibe. Uh, he didn't say it like that, though. That's just me. Which it does. Uh, yes. Uh, and yeah, Alex, Erotica by Madonna. Well done. Yep. <laughs> big fan. The only other one I could think of was it's used frequently on Pulse Boutique, which is the greatest sample album ever by Beastie Boys. Um, and weird fact, it is sung not by a member of Cool and the Gang. It is sung by their roadie, Don Boyce. Wow. Third song of the film is a beauty. It's Al Green's Let's Stay Together as we are introduced to the characters Marcellus Wallace and Butch Coolidge, played by Bing Rames and Bruce Willis, as we are just forced to focus on the face of Bruce Willis uh, as Marcellus Wallace talks to him and asks him to throw a fight. Uh, what do we think of this one? It's a cracker of a song. It sure is. It's the perfect song for this scene as well, because within the few seconds of hearing the song, it fills like, the whole scene with like the ambience of where you are, what's going on, it makes the scene almost feel warm, which is an odd thing yeah. to say, but I can't describe it any other way. And it's also all you need in terms of Bruce Willis's character. We don't need the rest of it. You've already got it here. <laughs> I feel like you got, you're making a point there, dude. Alex? I, I agree. I think it, it just like, it, you just luxuriate in the song and the sort of like weird pimpy background and the, and the it's night It's incredibly club. pimpy. Yeah. That sort of uh, hummed red light. Even though it fits, it's also anachronistic in the sense that there's like a lot of hard talking and swearing going on in the background because obviously Marcellus is just talking at uh, Butch isn't he and he's like there's there's a fair amount of swearing going on but it, but it's also like the, the tone he uses is still quite chilled it's just sort of, again it's just like piecing these weird bits together but I think it works really well as well to set up the fact that this is a pairing because like the film is made up of pairings with yeah. Jules and, and uh, Vincent and Vincent and Maya and, um, and then Butch and Marcellus which comes back in a big way, obviously, later in the film. So, let's stay together. They do. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Yeah, they do, kind of, eventually, in the end. They do, yes. yeah. So their stories are... Inter- it's sort of saying up the fact that their stories might be intertwined more than, say, Marcellus and Jules and Vincent. Because at first, obviously, you know that they work for him, so you feel like, oh, well... But he's not really involved in either of the two stories that they're involved in. It's more Marcellus and uh, Butch, isn't it? I just think it's, it's a really good scene as well, where it's just focused on... On a, on old Bruce for um for a good like five minutes. It um, really is, isn't it? You're really having to absorb his reaction. Yeah. Because I guess he's being asked to do a lot of things that he doesn't really want to do for the sake of money. Yeah. And that's just the actor. <laughs> to be fair, it is very it is Bruce Willis's standard blank hard man stare. It's it's subtle, is what it is. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it's yeah. It's it it works. It works when the right director is behind it. He is a man uh, of subtlety. And yeah, Tarantino said that he he finds use of it. Like stay together as hypnotic, and like that kind of through you having to f- be forced to watch Willis's reaction. Like you can't look away. There's not, you know, the the song is quiet enough where it could be being played in the bar, but it's not distracting you. It's just very, very sits very uh, effortlessly under uh, Marcellus's kind of deep voice. It's like the perfect voice for that uh, moment, uh, and he kind of says it in a very slow, methodical way. There's no rush about it. So far, I think his use of all the music is perfect. 
Uh, I won't say that to his face, though, in the many opportunities that I have, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) It is Al Green's most famous song, by far. Uh, Sorry, Al Green fans. And it's a song he said he hated in his autobiography. He hated it. Uh, I don't know if this is the classic um, artist hating their most famous song. Always brings me back to thinking of Warrant and Cherry Pie. Don't know if if that comparison was expected (laughs) by any of you. But I always just remember remember them saying how much they hated it. Um, It was a number one signal. Um, He was forced to record the song. Maybe that's why he hated it by producer Terry Manning, very famous producer Terry Manning, um, because he didn't like its slower tone. Yet, Rolling Stones magazine put it as the 60th greatest song of all time. Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a claim. It's a claim. It is a claim. Alex, claim right? Um, I think it's a good song, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't well, know is how it the 60th you po- greatest song of all time? Well, I don't know how you possibly go about creating those lists. Like, how do you, do, do you just get given a list of songs of 100 songs and then have to put them in an order? Or do I just have to know all the songs of all time? I, from like, my experience of reading these, of being obsessed with lists, it's usually they ask all of their critics to list their 50 favourite songs and then they aggregate them. Right. I think it's, so it's kind of like what everyone says, right. which is why I'm pretty sure at the time they did this, which was around like two sort of early 2010s, there was only three songs from the 21st century. That says a lot about the Rolling Stones. Um, <laughs> they're their critics. I think the three songs, and I think two of them by, by Eminem. Was wasn't one of them was Hey Ya by Eminem? Yeah, one of them was Hey Ya. Yeah, I think that's the other one. The next song, fourth song, is "Busting Surfboards" by the Tornadoes. How cool does that sound? Uh, yeah. The song instrumental plays as Lance's wife Jody waxes lyrical about the benefits of piercings during oral sex. Thoughts, Alex? <laughs> what about the benefits of piercings during oral sex? Uh, I don't have any. <laughs> don't really know what I want to say on that. Uh, it is an instrumental 45 recording with the crackling induced surf rock jam with ocean sounds including, which I loved. It's a proper mood set. It's got that guitar reverb. Do you thoughts? Not about oral sex. Uh, my thought is I don't think I've got this on my list of songs. <laughs> the next one I've got on my list is Lonesome Town. I just put, I didn't know where, I didn't remember where it about in the film it was from, but I really enjoyed the song. <laughs> well, there you go. It's a very cool song. It's cool. It's very cool. And there's a few of them. That's what I mean. There's, all the instrumental songs in the soundtrack are surf rock. Ah, I skipped it on my uh, notes because it doesn't have a Wikipedia page. So I just assumed it was like the <laughs> other ones. That's the level of detail we go into, folks. A lot of the shit, like Dick Dale, famous surf rock artist. Beach Boys kind of made it famous, but then they kind of just went out into general pop. The busting surfboards, the tornadoes, that is the iconic surf rock jam, and I'm saying it here right it now, It is a folks. tune. It's a tune. Listen to it. There you go. Don't worry about it. It's placed in the film. Just listen to the song. Stone Cold Classic. <laughs> cool. Fifth song, Lonesome Town by Ricky Nelson. Lyrical piece. Uh, and we hear this one. As we settle in to Jack Rabbit Slim's Dino, and Mia Wallace requests a $5 <laughs> shake. $5. And she expects Vincent Vega to pay the exorbitant price. Uh, what do we think of this one? This is getting into a very, very famous scene and, like I said, a very famous relationship between Mia and Vincent. So when I saw this written down, I did struggle to actually figure out why this song was in the movie. I guess similar to the uh, Bustin surfboards. Bust surfboards. But I think it does a very fine job of telling the audience what kind of establishment they're in, what the vibe is of this place. I do enjoy the fact that he's... Uh, crowing at the idea of a $5 shake when he's just spent $100 on drugs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, it depends what you prefer. Uh, milkshake or heroin, do you? Uh, does the milkshake have banana in it? Oh, you say, does the milkshake have heroin in it? 
It'd be more than five dollars if it was. <laughs> I mean, banana milkshake is unequivocally the best milkshake. Yes, probably. Banana and peanut butter is actually a little bit better. Yeah, well, I can't do that one, unfortunately. Yeah, sorry, Ben. Yeah, is, this, is this you ensuring that? No, no, no secondsies. It's five dollars, man. It's five dollars, but it's a fucking good milkshake. What do you think of this song, Alex? Like Dee said, it was difficult to pinpoint because it's kind of just background music, isn't it, to this scene? But I think, like, when I sort like sort of listened to it a bit, and like the fact that it's called Lonesome Town, I think it does just kind of it just cements the idea that these two people are kind of singular and a bit. I mean, obviously, the obvious word to use is lonely, but it, I'm trying to use a different word because it's meandering through life. <laughs> yeah, of... and like actually, they they come together on this evening and they have this absolutely wild. <laughs> night and it's kind of and that kind of really brings them close together but obviously immediately is uh torn apart in in a few scenes later when uh, old vincent gets it but it's kind of it becomes like one of those nights that they would have always remembered for the rest of their life especially vincent because the rest of his life is only a few days but it's <laughs> yeah it's it just it just sets it up doesn't it i think it just sets up the idea that about what's about to come and i think it works nicely and obviously the whole thing about him getting annoyed about how much the milkshake is is setting those two apart from each other to then bring them together in the dance scene yeah it definitely is a background song rewatching the scene it's not over it's hard to hear with tarantino's reliance and uh, favoritism for dialogue but it's like a soft prom song it's no earth angel it's definitely no earth angel, <laughs> but it's definitely it sounds like a prom song to me uh, and i can is that i think it's that that sort of rom, you know that sort of not young romantic but that sort of unsure romance you know, it's not that I can't keep my hands off you sort of thing. It's that, like, is there an attraction here, you know, to attractive people just finding their way? Yeah, it's That's leading, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit, it's leading into the romance. Like, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> hands, hands, hands on shoulders, not on hips. <laughs> Casper style. Two-step only. The song was originally intended to be recorded mm. as a Calypso song. That would have been a bit different. Any thoughts on where the lonesome town Ricky Nelson Ooh. is singing about is? Gary, Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> No, somewhere a bit New more York City, Gary, Indiana, London, no. Hollywood. Oh, yeah, that makes more sense because it's set in California, France. <laughs> it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, when you think of just shouting out random like geographical locations you're aware of. He said once in an interview, "I was sitting in the middle of this whole thing. I was broke, didn't know what I was going to do. My manager was giving me a few books, keeping me going, paying my rent, and it's this feeling that he was lost in Hollywood." Uh, and didn't have much of a career after this song, so sorry, Ricky. Hope you're doing fine. Uh, let us know on Twitter at TSFTMPod. So that brings into part one of our look at the songs of Pulp Fiction. We've got a hell of a lot more to go through, haven't we, Ben? Eight. Eight. Oh. Tune in next week. Bye. Bye. Casper style. <laughs> Part two. Featuring the platinum band. Oh, Casper slide. Oh, sorry, I thought you meant, yeah. <laughs>